It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This is one of two specials recorded at this year's Edinburgh Festival. Uh, firstly, if you came to these, thank you so much. The crowds were great. And if you came to see my stand-up show over the festival as well, thank you. It was a wonderful festival this year, probably the most enjoyable I've had. Uh, so thanks to all of you uh, who came and to anyone who stopped me in the street and, and told me they enjoyed the podcast. It always means a great deal. So thank you very much for that. Um, this first episode features Tommy Sheridan, someone who you may remember was meant to come on four years ago in Edinburgh, you know, on the precipice of that Scottish independence referendum, but sadly at short notice wasn't able to make it. Um, um, so I'm delighted that four years later we can catch up. Uh, he made his name as a passionate anti-poll tax campaigner against Margaret Thatcher. And really the, the, the fire is, remains undimmed, as you will find uh, in this interview. We talk about politics, we talk about his personal life to an extent, uh, we talk about life in prison, and we talk about a whole range of things, principally... Uh, his support for independence and for socialism and explore the idea that in a, in a Corbyn-led Labour Party whether actually his dream of socialism might not be best realised inside the UK. But I won't, no spoilers about the interview. Uh, but here we go. Uh, it's the first of two and enjoy this with Tommy Sheridan. Thank you, welcome to the show. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Political Party Podcast. Just by means of a cheer, uh, has anyone been to a recording of these or listened to the podcast before? Hey! Excellent. And give me a cheer if you haven't. Excellent, a nice mix of both. Yeah, someone thought that was funny. Um, well, hopefully from now on, uh, you'll all be in the f- uh, former camp, so that's nice. Um, the idea of the political party was a show I started uh, in London about six years ago, um, the idea being that there wasn't enough civil discussion about politics, and secondly, that there are fascinating individuals involved in politics the public don't often get to see in an informal environment. So it's, it's, it's in a respectful uh, arena, and talking to a variety of people. And today's guest uh, really is a, a variety all in himself. He is... Um, one of the most gifted orators uh, in Scottish politics, someone who is a defining figure uh, in the independence movement and in the socialist movement here. Uh, as controversial as he is charismatic, I wanted to interview him uh, four years ago during the independence debate, and sadly we couldn't make it work. I'm delighted to say that four years on, I've finally been able to tie a date down to one of the biggest stars in modern recent political history. Please give a huge welcome to Tommy Sheridan. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Tommy, welcome to the show. There was a slight ripple there when I said your name. Controversial. Controversial, um, but welcome to the show. Uh, There's so many things, obviously, that, I would, uh, that I'm going to try and cover in the hour. Um, let's start with uh, something contemporary. Brexit is, uh, is ongoing at the moment. It's seen as a, as a complete disaster. Are you still... You're a sceptic. Do you still think it's the right thing for us to leave? Very much so. I'm someone who thinks that the European Union as a body um, is established to promote big business, to promote the free market. In fact, if you read the Copenhagen Treaty, you'll see that you're not allowed to be a socialist country and be a member of the European Union. So it actually banishes socialism. Uh, If you trace back a lot of the privatisation of railway services, of mail services, education, a lot of it is rooted in what the European Union is doing. They're driving forward neoliberal economics in order to promote the free market across Europe. So the idea that Europe somehow or other is friendly to the workers, I think is probably based in the 80s when Thatcher was so bad that people used to say, oh, but Europe will protect us. Well, that may have been the case then, but the countries that have recently joined the European Union make it a very, very different uh, animal. It's a very right-wing animal. It's an animal that, in my opinion, um, was disgraceful in terms of the treatment of Greece, in terms of the treatment of Portugal, in terms of the treatment of Ireland, all of which they forced neoliberal economics on them to the detriment of ordinary working class people. So from my point of view, as a socialist, and this 
unfortunately was not what you heard in the Brexit argument. You never got the socialist argument for leaving Brexit because the BBC, British Bias Corporation, always wanted to promote the right-wing agenda, the anti-immigration agenda, which isn't the agenda that the left's standing on, isn't the agenda that the trade unions are standing on, isn't the agenda that Tony Benn, Bob Crow, big heroes of mine, that was their agenda, and it's an agenda that wasn't heard, unfortunately. However, and I'll finish the, the answer to your question by making this point, however, Scotland didn't follow what I believe in that respect. Scotland overwhelmingly voted to stay in the European Union, probably as a bit of an idea of, well, we don't want to be totally isolated, we'd rather be part of the European Union. And also, I have to say that in terms of political ideas and, and, and political positions, Scotland is a centre-left country. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's a centre-left country. We don't have, yes, we've got problems of racism and there are anti-immigrant views in society, but nowhere near as much as exists in England. I mean, I, I think Scotland, the fact that we are an immigrant nation. You know, William McIlvanny, who's one of our, our best ever uh, novelists, uh, once described Scotland as a mongrel nation. A mongrel, we don't have purity. We have a nation that's made up of all sorts from everywhere. And I think that's reflected in the fact that we are more willing to embrace immigration than to reject immigration. In terms of then the referendum then, were you campaigning alongside any like UKIP types or vote leave people? During the, During the no, EU referendum? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I think the Tories um, won a watch when they convinced the Labour Party, very, very tactically immature and stupid of the Labour Party, to become part of the Better Together campaign, or we call them the Better Together campaign. And they, they managed to get them to link together not understanding that in Scotland, you know, being a Tory is not very popular, um, especially in the areas where the Labour Party used to have its votes. Yeah. Uh, I remember being interviewed in the British Bias Corporation um, <laughs> headquarters on the night of the referendum. And I was in, sitting in a wee um, uh, table and had uh, Lord John Reid, you know, I mean, there's an oxymoron in it, a Labour politician <laughs> called a Lord. How can that be? But there you go, John Reid was there um, and Wee Glenn was doing the interviewing and, and then a, a, a tweet come through and it was from Joanne Lamont, the then Scottish Labour uh, leader, and it was, congratulations to the Labour Party in winning the referendum vote. And I said there then, and I say now, that was a Pyrrhic victory. I advised John and his underlings to go and look up the, the, the Pyrrhic uh, definition of, of winning a battle. But in, this, in, the, in the course of winning that battle, you expend so much of your force that you end up losing the war. They won the battle that night, but they've lost the war for the hearts and the minds of working class communities across Scotland. You now look... You look at what happened at that 2015 general election, Matt. Mm. People would never have believed you if you had turned around and said in 2014, 2013, by the way, see the next general election, the Labour Party is going to be reduced to one MP in the whole of Scotland. <laughs> People would have laughed at you. say, oh, get him away, get the white coats in. He's off his head, right? <laughs> the truth is that's exactly what happened. And the Labour Party will not recover because they linked arms when sipped their champagne and jumped together with the Tories. They embraced the very party that destroyed Scotland. And in order for them to do that, they have to be tactically mad. And that's why your likes of Jim Murphy's and others are now not in involved in politics as such. Would it not be perhaps true to say that they lost the battle but they won the war? That they kept Scotland in the Union, which was a far bigger prize than a, a temporary election result. And obviously in 2017 the SNP did lose ground. Um, how do you feel about, <laughs> how do you feel about though, Labour now? Because uh, under Corbyn... Surely this is your party. Different questions. Let, let, let me, I, don't, I, I can't move on to Corbyn until I deal with your first point. Because <laughs> the, the, I, I do laugh sometimes when people talk about, oh, look at the SNP, you know, uh, they lost ground in 2017. Yeah. The SNP up until 2015, the highest ever number of MPs they ever had yeah. was six. Then it went to they 56. went to 56, right? Yeah. 
That was obviously a high point. I mean, there was only three other seats and they should have taken uh, wee Davies Mundell, that idiot down in Dumfries. If they give, unfortunately, the Green Party stood. If they hadn't stood, then we would have taken that seat as well and it would have been uh, only two. But then, in 2017, they won 35 seats. Yeah. Now, you know, I failed my arithmetic O-level, but there are 59 seats. 35 is more than half. Yeah. So the SNP speaks for more than half of Scotland. But if you listen to the narrative of the BBC, oh, disaster for the SNP, you know, they've lost ground. They've still got more than half of Scotland. And from that point of view, that's why I reject that point you made. Mm. They didn't win the battle and the war. They've lost the war. Scotland's going to be independent. There's no, no doubt in my mind Scotland's going to be independent. When? And that's because, psychologically, if you look at the referendum result, you look at who voted yes, you look at who was enthusiastic, you look at who was motivated, the young people of Scotland. Yeah. You look at who voted no, the old people of Scotland. We have the future. We have the future. And my prediction will be that at October conference of the SNP, there will be an announcement made and there will be a new referendum in March of next year. And that's a referendum that we're going to win. Uh, the analysis is, is hard to argue with, isn't it? Because if you look at it by voting age, you're absolutely right. Older people voted to say in the UK, younger people didn't. Obviously, there were some young people that didn't and some older people that did. Is it, though that it's just that generation that hold those views, or is it that as people get older, their views change and they mellow and actually they see the benefits of staying in the EU or, or the UK? I would argue, uh, Mark, that what you've got is people growing up with, for instance, the Scottish Parliament, with, for instance, the idea that Scotland takes political decisions on big issues like education, big issues like transport, big issues like the health service. We have got a generation over 60, 70, 80 who didn't have that history. They, they, they don't have a concept of Scotland taking those decisions because they grew up in a Westminster era. The people growing up now are growing up in an era where not only are we taking those decisions, but we're doing a damn better job at these things than what Westminster's doing. On education? Absolutely on education. Absolutely. Mm. Well, well, you know... People don't seem to agree. Well, the, the, the people that don't agree should contact their mates, phone up their mates after the show and say, hi, John, how's it going? Are you still sending the Waynes to that university in Birmingham? How much are your fees? Yeah. Because we don't have them up here. The reason John and Janet are sending the Waynes up to Scotland yeah. is because we don't have the fees. We are trying... But that's higher education. Of course it's higher education. In terms of, in terms of hires and, and in terms of... 16 to 18 education, it's probably been the biggest problem that the SNP have faced. I don't, I don't accept that. But as that a socialist, you I, I don't accept that. I, I, I think what we have, as socialists, what we have to do is we have to try and improve educational attainment, but more importantly than that, we have to try and be inclusive as far as education. That means lifelong education. That means there shouldn't be barriers for young working class kids getting to university, and whether you know, you're willing to accept it or not, tuition fees are a barrier, a massive barrier. I'd like to see the SNP government go a lot further. I'd like to see them reintroduce grants so that we actually give remuneration to people who are studying and trying to develop their, their knowledge. Because at the end of the day, these people who are developing skills and degrees they're inevitably going to be working in the public services here in Scotland. So from my point of view, I think there should be an element of remuneration. But that means that we look at education no longer as a luxury, but as a right. And that's what the Labour Party lost under Tony Blair. It's what the Tories have never had, because uh, they've always wanted to have education as, as exclusive. You can take the SNP government apart and say, oh, they should have done that in transport, they should have done this on health, they should have done that in education. But take it as a whole, and as a whole, they're doing a damn better job than what malevolent May is doing down in Westminster. <laughs> but you sound, you sound more like a, an SNP supporter than you do a socialist. Well, you see, who do you vote for when it comes to 2015 election? I'm a member of Solidarity, it's a socialist party, it's a small socialist party. Yeah. We're not going to win elections. 
We're not, we're not big enough yet to win elections. And when you come to a general election, you've got one vote. Now, if I stood in my area of Cardonald, uh, in, in the south of Glasgow, maybe I could get a few hundred votes. But the SNP won by a few hundred votes. <laughs> so why would I stand and risk taking votes from the independent supporting candidates? So that's why in 2015, <coughs> I and my party said, lend your vote to the SNP. Let's maximise the yes vote behind the SNP. That's what we've done, and it was absolutely marvellous as, as a result. I would say that's what we have to do at the next election as well. Comes to Scottish Parliament elections, different kettle of fish. You've got two votes. My argument then is, the give your constituency the... vote to the SNP, let's shore up the independence uh, support in the Parliament, but with your second vote, give it to one of the other independent supporting parties, whether that be the Greens, whether it be Solidarity, whether it be one of the other socialist parties, give it to one of them. Because if you give it to the SNP, given the dominance in politics yeah. now, it's a wasted vote. And in 2016, people tried to have a go as on that particular strategy. And they said, oh, you're just arguing for the votes for yourselves. And I said, no, no, I'm not saying vote Solidarity, I'm saying vote for one of the others. And people didn't follow that. The SNP came up with a strategy. Two votes, SNP. Problem is, one million votes were wasted because they didn't count because of the electoral system. They weren't clever enough to understand the electoral system mm. means. It was set up, they weren't set up to stop majority government. Mm. What happened in 2011 was never supposed to happen. That was the first time the SNP yeah. won a majority. It was never supposed to happen, but it did. It bucked the, the, the haunt system. It never happened. But that's what people wanted. It never happened in 16, because by that time, a lot of the unionists had run, understood, it doesn't matter how many constituency votes or uh, seats the SNP win, we'll win on the list. And I, irony of ironies, of course, the Tories, they oppose the list system, yeah. but without it, They'd be like the dodo, extinct here in Scotland, but they've actually benefited from it. In terms then, do you not feel slightly conflicted that on the one hand, I, I get the independence argument for supporting the SNP, but in fact, Scottish Labour, and particularly UK Labour's now politics, are far closer to yours. Jeremy Corbyn probably strikes more of a chord with you in terms of domestic policy. Take independence out of the question than Nicola Sturgeon does. He's far more radical, he's far more left-wing. Do you Jeremy's not feel that actually you should be supporting Corbyn and not Sturgeon? Jeremy's a lovely guy. Um, first met him 29 years ago at the campaign group of uh, Labour MPs at Westminster. I was invited to address the campaign group on support for the anti-poll tax campaign and mass non-payment. And Jeremy was uh, among those who argued in favour of the campaign group of MP supporting us. People like uh, Dennis Skinner, people like Dave Nellis, people like Tony Benn, all backed us. And ever since then, uh, I can trace Jeremy's pol politics from then. And consistently, he's been on the right side of the people. Maybe on the wrong side of the media, but he's been on the right side of the people, whether it be in justice campaigns, like the Birmingham Six, the Gulf for Four, or whether it be in war and against the attack of Iraq, attack of Afghanistan. So Jeremy... Anti-Semitism? Oh, listen, come on. What an absolutely ridiculous situation, Matt. The idea that the media is able to create this narrative, you know, is Orwellian in the extreme. This man whose whole life has been dedicated to fighting racism, fighting Semitism, anti-Semitism. This guy has been on the streets when others just talked about it. And now we're to believe that he's a racist. But he's he, an anti-Semite. It's but, absolute garbage. But, That's he, what it is. But, well, but he disagrees. He says they do have an anti-Semitism problem. He says he personally has been too slow to stop the persecution of the Jews. I think uh, Jeremy has been under pressure recently in the last uh, few weeks. I think he was ill-advised to come out and try and deal with the, the narrative that's been produced by the, the BBC and the pro-Israeli lobby, which is, oh, there's a big problem, there's a big problem. Jeremy should have said, listen, any problems that exist, we'll deal with it, but there is no bigger problem in the Labour Party than there is in society as a whole. Anti-Semitism is a problem. Anti-racism is a problem. These problems should be dealt with. Yeah. The idea that Jeremy is any more of a problem than, than, than these other people. It's just garbage. But it has only, it has a, I used to work for the party, Tommy, and I never encountered, I encountered sexism, I encountered homophobia, I encountered all sorts of awful things in the Labour Party, and you're absolutely right, that would exist in all parties, it would exist in society. 
I never encountered anti-Semitism in all my years as an activist. But it is only under Corbyn that this problem has festered. But you see, th think of what you've just and said. And Momentum accepts th that, th and he accepts that. Th think about what you've just said, actually, Matt. I, I think you've contradicted yourself. Because you were involved in, in, in the Labour Party for many, many years. Now, you're saying you never encountered it. Yeah. But to, to suggest that the Labour Party of old didn't have some anti-Semitism would just be wrong, wouldn't it? Because society's got anti-Semitism and political parties tend to reflect society. But, it tends to be, but the idea that Jeremy Corbyn's party has this problem that the old Labour Party didn't under Blair, I just don't accept. What Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn has is he has a very, very organised, well-financed, well-oiled machine which is critical of his stance on Palestine. Now, what the Israeli lobby want to do is they want to make support for the rights of the Palestinian people to an independent nation synonymous with being an anti-Semite. And it's not. It's totally wrong. There's over 74, I was reading yesterday, 74 different uh, international respected Jewish organisations have come out and rejected the definition which the Jewish Council is trying to get to Corbyn to support. So the idea that there's only <coughs> one Jewish view, view on this, yeah. it's just garbage. And I know the guy, you know the guy, you've worked the Labour Party, and the truth is the media know the guy as well. The idea that he's an anti-Semite is just garbage. So do you, do you still talk to him at all? I've not spoken to him for years. Um, probably about two or three years ago was the last time I think I shared a happy birthday with him on Facebook type of thing. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, it wasn't on an anti-Semitic Facebook group, was it? No, it, cer <laughs> it, cer it certainly wasn't. But I'm quite sure Facebook could manufacture it if they wanted. Um, the, the, the truth is, um, Jeremy, as far as I'm concerned, is the first choice for England. I, I, 2015, 2017, next general election, any friends I've got uh, that in England, I would encourage them, vote Labour. Vote Jeremy Corbyn because I think he'd be the best Prime Minister that uh, England's ever had. There's no, no doubt about it. However, but where, than, where I differ is that Jeremy's position better than on independence is just a contradiction. But do you think he'd be better than Attlee? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. I think, I think it would be better than, better than Attlee because I think Clem was carried by the movement. I think Clem Attlee was carried by the movement and carried by the desire that things had to change because of the Second World War and conditions before the Second World War, the idea of the National Health Service, the idea of National Rail, the idea of a national bank, all yeah. these things. Welfare state. The whole welfare state conception under Beveridge and, and, and Attlee was clearly part and parcel of that historical time. I don't think Clem particularly was a big socialist. I don't think he thought that out. I think he was carried by the movement. Corbyn, on the other hand, leads the movement. Corbyn, in my opinion, is the most rounded out socialist that we've had as a leader. Um, even if you compare to, to Keir Hardy, Keir was a, a firebrand, he, he, he was a fighter, he was born of the working class, in the mines at the age of 12. So he, he knew what working class life was about, his idea in republicanism and anti-royal, brilliant. But again, in terms of his work to ideas, socialist ideas, I think Jeremy is streets ahead of that. So from my point of view, best leader, the Labour Party's ever had. Obviously, you're going to disagree because you've got a Corbyn back, you've got a, a Blair background and all the rest of it. That, that's fine. But from my point of view, where I disagree with Jeremy is I think he's got a blind spot with Scotland. Jeremy and I agree that Ireland should be an independent country. Jeremy and I agree that Palestine should be an independent country. Jeremy and I agree that Cuba should be an independent country. Venezuela should be an independent country. Why the hell he's got his blind spot when it comes to Scotland is beyond me. But because, he, because it's an artificial concept. But he seems to be quite supportive. In the past, he's certainly given interviews that suggest he does support Scottish independence, or that he certainly wouldn't be as bothered as other Labour Party figures if Scotland were to be independent. In March of last year, um, the Scottish Parliament, after uh, several weeks of debate, um, decided and voted for the right to call Indiref 2. Yeah. So that's the will of the Scottish Parliament. And the very next day, Jeremy tweeted, we should not stand in the way of the will of the Scottish Parliament. Brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Within three days, that had been wiped out, and we had Kezia Dugdale, who was the leader at the time, come on and saying, absolutely no way, the Labour Party opposes an independent F2, we'd have to go on with the day job, blah, blah, blah. So what's happened there is, Germany has 
expressed his real views yeah. and then been told by Scotland, no, you can't say that, you can't say that. And it's stupid because if, if the Labour Party in Scotland was to turn around and say, we support independence, but we're going for a socialist independent Scotland. We're going to take the SNP's idea of a public energy company and we're going to make it a reality. We're going to take the idea of a national investment bank, we're going to make it a reality. We are going to build a Scotland that banishes nuclear weapons instead of funding nuclear weapons and we're going to put it in our health service, we're going to put it in the education service. I think they would win back the working class areas that they've lost. But until they do that, until they, 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 they realise that they're wrong in the constitutional question, they're not going to win back their Scottish working class support. But it's a peculiar situation for them, isn't it? Because the majority of Scottish people voted to stay in the UK. The 55% is there to be won. The Tories have done a very good job at owning the union as a political ideal. Labour were in a tailspin after that 2014 referendum. You got the sense that some of them actually would be quite happy with independence, didn't want to say it. Some of them were, were frankly blindsided by the landslide that the SNP enjoyed. And again, at the last election, and I take your point that it's still a very high watermark. Um, in terms of pure maths, they'd be better off going for the 55, wouldn't they? In terms of the Labour Party, we'd be better going the for Labour the Labour Party, would, yeah. Would it not be more sensible to, to box the Tories out on the issue of the union and say we would stay in the UK, but we'd make it more progressive with Jeremy in power at Westminster and Scotland in power at Holyrood, mm -hmm. uh, Labour in power at Holyrood? Not if you look at the trajectory of the political movement and you look at the sophology behind the independence referendum, why, why would you invest your political future on an ageing population rather than... Because they've young. Well, well, yeah, <laughs> fair do I think it's quite cynical because I think the future are the young people who are, who are coming forward. We have got clearly an overwhelming majority. Some polls have showed up to 70% of under 30-year-olds mm. supporting independence. But we also have got to bear in mind here, Matt, in October of 2013, the Guardian carried... Big, big piece on the social attitude survey in That's Scotland. That's right, John that Curtis's day. piece, yeah. Um, massive big piece, and it was about uh, support for independence had flatlined. Support for independence had uh, fallen to 25%. That was October mm. 2013. So that was 11 months before the referendum. That's right. 25%. You then have a campaign. Now, you have got a media tornado that tells you you must retain the union. You've got Obama telling you you must retain the union. You've got the Chinese Prime Minister telling you you've got to retain the union. You had the Deutsche Bank coming out with reports. If Scotland votes for independence, there'll be a new depression across Europe. Mm. You had the shipyards telling their employees, if you vote for independence, you're going to lose your jobs. Mm. You had all the trade unions in Scotland writing to their members, telling them you must support the union. Despite all of that, we went from 25% to 45%. It was a victory for social media over corporate media. That's yeah. what that was, a yeah. massive victory. And yes, we lost, but that was only the battle. Yeah. We now have, I think, the prospect coming up, short six-month campaign. I think the next referendum is going to be March of next year. We don't need a 12-month campaign. We know the arguments. We know the lies that were told with the vow, the vow that saved it in the last minute. Even, even the author, Murray Foote of the vow, has now come out and says, sorry guys, you're right, it's, it was a lot of garbage and I'm now for independence. I think Brexit, ironically enough, will have changed a lot of people's minds because people, and I'm thinking now about the elderly, who thought, oh no, we're going to be isolated. We're going to be isolated if we go for independence. I'm going to stick with the union because Cameron has said that if you go for independence, you're going to be out of yeah. the European Union. Well, I'm afraid that was wrong. That was a miscalculation. So you'll get some people now saying, wait a wee minute, I think the European Union is going to be more friendly to an independent Scotland than they are to an independent England. And I think all of that is enough of a mix. You know, it's one trick pony. You can only tell these lies once. You know, they're not going to be able to frighten the prisoners <coughs> any longer, Matt, about... You'll not get your pension if you go for independence. Yeah. You're not going to be able to frighten the shipyard workers. By the way, if you don't vote for uh, the union, you're going to lose all these frigate deals. Well, wait a minute. You've lost all these frigate deals. And they voted for the bloody union. So from my point of view, we need to win 6%. Yeah. 
I don't think we will win 6 million. I think we'll win more than that. But we need to win over 6% of the Scottish population. And we're going to win independence in March of next year. I totally get the argument about Brexit, that people in Scotland voted to stay in the EU and against their will they'll be taken out of it. I think that's a material change in the, in the, in the, in the contract of the union. It, it, there's no question about that. Doesn't Brexit also show, though, that leaving unions is difficult, that it's economically tricky, that it can lead to job losses, that actually banks do leave, employers do leave, and to be fair the, to the SNP and their Sustainable Growth Commission report, they accept the finance sector would now leave. You know, the, the allegations that they said were project fear, they now accept as project fact and put in their own documents and say, actually, these employers would leave. <laughs> it's a bit of a sweeping statement. But they do, they do accept that there would be an economic impact. Well, first of all, impact let, 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 let's try and get this um, document into perspective. Mm. It was written by Andrew, uh, Andrew Wilson, who I, was, I was, used to be an MSP with, and Andrew has a, a banking background, yep. economics. Um, he was asked to do an academic paper, yeah. and he's done it. And there are things in it that I think are quite good, and there are things in it that I think are pish. Now, <laughs> the, the, the idea that we're going to somehow or else, oh, this is the new white paper, garbage. The idea, for instance, that we don't go into the next referendum with a commitment to at least put to the Scottish people after independence that we have our own currency. Yeah. That's got to be there. And yet, Andrew says, oh no, we shouldn't have our own currency. Rubbish. The idea that we don't go into this next referendum and say, by the way, in an independent Scotland, you will have the right to vote on whether we apply to join the European Union or not, yeah. because by that time, we'll, we'll be out as part of the UK. Of course it's got to be there, because some people support independence, but don't support the European Union. It'd be wrong to tie the two of them together. Yes. So there are, you've got to remember, independence means different things to different people. I'm a socialist, I want an independent socialist republic. That's what, that's what I want. My, do, do my, my daughter it? sometimes says to me, she's only 13 years of age, and she sometimes says, Dad, uh, uh, once we get independence, does that mean we won't have the Queen any longer? You know, and I say, listen, darling, I'd love that to be the case, <laughs> but we need that stage first. Then we can have a vote on whether we're a democratic, modern republic, or whether we're going to stay part of a, an archaic uh, monarchy. So these things have to be taken on board. What we all agree on Matt. You know, it's a bit like you going back to London and you're going to have a disagreement with some of your friends about whether you take the train, whether you drive, whether you, you, you get uh, uh, the plane. Different right. ways of getting to London. Yeah. We all agree Scotland should be an independent country that takes its own decisions. What we do afterwards, we might have different, different disagreements, but, but we agree on that fundamentally. But is that more important to you than getting, say, socialism? Because let's say, let's say, let's give you a choice, and I realise that's imperfect, but the likelihood is, given how popular the SNP are, in Holyrood, the Tories came second, uh, Labour came third, um, the Scottish Socialist Party Solidarity don't have at the moment the sort of support that those parties enjoy. And I understand that politics is volatile, who's, who could rule out what would happen in an independent country. But the likelihood is if Scotland went independent, it would have a broadly centrist uh, approach that would be probably far more friendly to business than you'd like to be and more middle of the road than you would be. If Scotland stayed in the Union and Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, your chance of a socialist society is far more achievable. Again, Matt, I've got to take umbrage with your characterisation because... I don't think you could describe Scotland as a centrist country at all. No, but, you could and, no, but the SNP is a centrist well, government. This is, this is what I'm going to come on to. In 2007, um, I fought the uh, Scottish Parliament elections and unfortunately lost um, my, my seat. At that time, the SNP fought on a programme. Anti-war, anti-trident, pro-immigration, anti-PFI and anti-council tax. Mm -hmm. They won. They won. I was interviewed by um, Bernard uh, Ponsby in STV the night that I'd lost my seat. And he said, how do you feel, Tommy? And I said, I'm gutted. I'm gutted personally. But politically, I'm happy. Because Scotland has moved to the left. Scotland has rejected the Blairite agenda that was on offer by the Blairite Labour Party. But it's and endorsed a party, yeah. anti-war, anti-trident, pro-immigration, and, 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 and anti-PFI. Those are all centre-left positions, well, Matt. And the SNP's recent conference, look, look at what was produced at the conference. They are now coming forward and saying they want the NHS as a public organisation to be enshrined in a new Scottish constitution. They're now saying they want a publicly owned 
energy company. They're now saying they want a national investment bank. I've got to tell you, there used to be Labour Party positions. Yeah. There used to be left positions in the Labour Party. So the idea that but, you would characterise the SNP as a centre party just now, I just think is wrong. It's a centre-left party. But they're certainly to the right of Corbyn. Um, I think on some issues. Um, on we, taxation, they definitely are. Well, what about Trident? Well, oh, C Corbyn's <laughs> anti-Trident. <laughs> I'm sorry, you can't. Well, you see, you, Corbyn's that, definitely anti-Trident. That's, like, that's like me taking the, the most left-wing SNP, MSP, and then saying to you, oh, but look at their position. No, but you Corbyn know. is anti-Trident. There's but no I'm question. A, I'm sorry, his party isn't. Yeah, but he is. He's going to fight the uh, election on spending £205 billion on scrap metal. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It's <laughs> never going to be used. You know, let's use it for health, for education, instead of actually feeding... For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. War. I guess what I'm trying to get to is, Corbyn is demonstrably to the left of the SNP and most people in the SNP would accept that. He's, a, he's an out and out socialist. Is independence more important to you or is socialism more important? It's, it's not an either or. Um, I'm, I'm very much of the McLean and the Connolly tradition. My, you know, Billy Connolly? <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm not as friendly to the Royals as Billy. Um, <laughs> not as funny either, obviously. But, um, or as rich. But the, um, James and, 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 and uh, Connolly and John McLean had a, a very, very clear position on that. And that, that is that independence, Ireland, Scotland, was a means to an end. It's, it's not an end in itself. I, I don't passionately believe in an independent Scotland because it's a full stop, because it's an end of the journey. I believe in an independent Scotland because it's the beginning of the journey. What we've then got to do is construct a new and a better country. A country that invests in our young people. A country that looks after our elderly. A country that says to people that want to come and live here, here's the hand of friendship, not the fist of fury. Unfortunately, England has got problems there. England and its political culture and over many years, and I blame Blairism a lot for it, Matt, I've got to say, because there wasn't a political choice for the working class. So they went elsewhere. Mm. In Scotland, the reason that the SNP has sweeped up so many of the votes of the former for the Labour Party isn't it because they moved to the right, it's because they moved to the left. It was the referendum was the crucial difference. It was the 2014, it was a, it was a reset, it was, a, it was an earthquake in terms of the mindset of, of voters, wasn't it? But think, Without that referendum, the SNP would not have got 56 think of your seats narrative. Th on left-wing tickets. Th think your narrative, that you're saying the referendum was the key issue. Yeah. The SNP won a minority government in 2007. Yeah. The SNP won a majority government in 2011. Yes. So the process that I'm talking about, Absolutely. The, the snow off the dike of the melting of the Labour vote, was already underway, it was already developing. What happened in terms of that referendum is it crystallised because what you had was that offensive, horrible situation of the likes of Darlin and Murphy linking hands with Davidson and co, sipping their champagne and their brandy. That certainly crystallised the loss of the Labour vote. <sighs> Sounds from quite my good. point of view, it was a process <laughs> It was a process that was long underway, Mark. I quite like champagne and brandy, so I'm sure you're uh, partial to the occasional one. It's, it's up to yourself, but I'm, <laughs> I'm afraid that the priorities for those people, uh, they, what they should have done, they should have established a proper Labour campaign mm. against uh, independence. But what they did is they joined Better Together and it became a union flag-waving operation. What? And they will, I think, not recover from it. In terms of um, just playing devil's advocate on that, Aren't Scottish voters more sophisticated? And aren't they perfectly capable of seeing harmony on one issue and understanding that, well, the Tories want to keep the union for a set of ideals, 
Labour want to keep it for an entirely separate set of ideals. The Lib Dems want to stay in it for a different reason. And we're mature enough to see that on that one issue they would campaign together, but we're also mature enough to understand that they are still distinct parties. We know that Labour's more left-wing than the Tories. No, I, I think it's very, very clear that if you are from some of the uh, Ayrshire um, coalfield villages or the uh, Lanarkshire steel villages and you have watched with your own eyes how Thatcher destroyed Scotland, destroyed it as a, an economic entity, as a manufacturing concern on the basis of promoting finance, of the, on the basis that the British economy no longer should make things. What we should do is we should sell services. Yeah. We should become a service economy. And what we should do is then buy things cheaply so that we close down our coal mines and then we buy coal for Poland. Stupid yeah. economic madness. But that's what Thatcher did. And Labour embraced that party. That will never be forgiven. People's memories are long, Matt. Even, even your harshest critics, I think, would say of you, um, you have enormous reserves of energy and passion. And it is remarkable that the fire still burns as brightly today as it ever did. Do you ever get exhausted by politics and think, actually, I'd rather have a quiet life and just work in the garden, watch telly? Uh, listen, play you know, cricket. My, my, my wife and my daughter are, are here with me today. And uh, quite clearly, um, Gail and, and, and Gabrielle often berate me for the number of meetings I'm doing and the fact that I'm travelling all over the country. Um, and they, you know, they say, remember, you know, you're supposed to be my daddy, you know, and, and, and fair enough, that's, that's a fair point. But you know what? Anybody that's involved in politics, I'm involved for my daughter. Yeah. I want Gabrielle to grow up in a country that doesn't have bloody nuclear weapons 20 miles away. I want Gabrielle to grow up in a country where people eventually ask, what was racism? What was poverty? Yeah. I, I want her to grow up in a society where we actually promote love and cooperation rather than hate and division. That's the type of society I wanted to grow up in. So if I wanted to grow up in that, I've got to fight for it, Matt. We've all got to fight for it. We've all got to do a bit. But why do you think the fire burns in you in a way that it doesn't in others? Uh, some people sort of mellow and get calmer with age. If anything, you seem even more passionate now than you did. I don't know about that. I, I think my, my mother's to blame for that. Um, my, my, my mum was my, probably my single biggest inspiration in politics, Matt. My, my mum left school without any qualifications, 15 years of age, worked in SNP government, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, when you consider when she left school, the, the, the SNP was hardly existing as a party. Um, but uh, she worked in pubs most of her life, worked as a cleaner. Uh, and then she got involved in the trade union. She, she, she became a member of the Transport and General Workers Union. She started getting the rest of the bar stewards involved in the union. And she became very good at it. So good that the TNG said, we'd like you to become an organiser. Uh, um, and my mum's claim to fame uh, in the early 1970s was she organised the first ever strike against the tenant Caledonian brewers because tenant Caledonian in those days wouldn't recognise the union. So they wouldn't pay uh, staff proper rates, they wouldn't pay for taxis to get them home after late shifts, they wouldn't pay them overtime. So my mum said, well, we're going on strike. And they laughed at her and they said, we're going strike. Nobody's going to support this strike, they'll just go to another pub. You know, how, how are you going to pick at all the pubs in Glasgow? And of course, what they hadn't understood is my mum wasn't going to pick at the pubs. My mum picked the brewery. And in those days, all the lorry drivers were in the union. <laughs> and within two days, Tenant Caledonian gave in and they recognised the, 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 the union. So it was an excellent uh, situation. She then got involved in what was known as the Battered Wives Movement, which is now known as women's aid. women's aid. But in those days, it was the Battered Wives Movement. And I remember as a wee boy, my mum would get phone calls. Um, and I could tell the person on the other line was distressed and my mum would be getting a taxi to go to this person's house mm -hmm. and she was going to get a woman out of a house where she was uh, subject to domestic mm -hmm. violence and I used to as a wee boy, I was greeting mm -hmm. I, I used to, no, no mum, don't go, don't so go So you started out as a green? And, 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 and <laughs> I can remember all of that as a wee boy and thinking that I didn't want my mum to do that yeah. because I wanted her to be with me mm -hmm. but the truth is, Mark, you've asked where did the passion come from Obviously, that sense of right and wrong, of injustice, of trying to fight for the underdog, it's obviously came from her. I mean, I remember a final wee story about that. Um, I remember in 1972, 
um, <laughs> was only eight years of age. Um, and I used to, I used to line up all my wee soldiers, the British soldiers, the German soldiers, and used to fight them. And you warmonger, Tommy. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> By the way, until I learned about John Wayne, I used to like him. Um, until I found out he was a grassing bastard in, in the McCarthy days and stuck all his mates in, which is how he got the roles in Hollywood. I didn't know that until modern studies, but there you go. Um, so that, that's your background. And I remember this night saying to my mum, I want to play with my soldier, and says, I'm sorry, son, you're not going to be able to play with I said, I do because the lights are going out. I thought, what do you mean the lights are going out? And sure enough, the lights went out, mm. and the candles were, were lit. And my mum sat me on her knee, and she told me about these miners, mm. and how they used to go away underground, and they, they dug for this coal, and that coal was then made into electricity, but they weren't getting proper wages, very dangerous job, and that's why they were on strike, and that's why the lights were out. And I remember thinking, well, I don't really care, I'm not getting put in my soldiers. <laughs> but you know what? I can still remember that story. And that has stuck with me, Mark. And that sense of injustice, that sense of fighting for the underdog, I think, has, has came from my mother. Well, injustice is crucial. Justice has always has, has been a big part of your story as well, with uh, um, two big trials, um, various spells in prison for various things, for stopping a, a warrant sale of, uh, of, of the poll tax. Um, was your first burn. You, you, you won a council seat. Uh, in Glasgow in 1992 from a prison cell, which must have been a Along the road there in Sockton. I won, it, I won it from Sockton. It was the easiest election I've ever fought. <laughs> I didn't even have to deliver a leaflet. Um, I was sent to jail in 1992. Um, actually, it, was, it may have been late 1991. But it was 19 March 1992. Uh, I was sent to jail for contempt of court. Um, because I had been told to stay away from a warrant sale that was planned against a lone parent from um, Inverclyde um, who'd lost her wee TV, display cabinet uh, and a wee uh, um, um, table. And the sheriff officers come in when she was out of the house and taken it. And the lassie come back and was in tears. They changed her lock. They had, she had a, a, an envelope through her letterbox telling her to go to Abernethy McIntyre, the sheriff officers, to pick up her new keys. And they charged her for the locksmith's uh, uh, labour and for the new keys. And they'd added all this to her bill. And they were going to sell her stuff at the 1st of October 1991 in Turnbull Street in Glasgow. Uh, and myself and others, we said, no way, you can't do this. We've got to stick together. We've got to stop this. You can't have warrant sales. Uh, and hundreds of us turned up. The day before it, I got an interdict put through the door saying, you're not allowed to be there. Um, and I said, well, I've came this far, I'm no stopping now. Went along to the warrant sale, probably about 300 of us, we surrounded the van, uh, we told the sheriff officers, you're not having a warrant sale. It's, it's just, it's, it's immoral, we're not allowing it, it's off. And they toed and froed, and then the police told them, we can't guarantee your safety, you're going to have to try, you're going to have to call this off. So they called it off. The lassie got stuffed back, uh, we stopped the first warrant sale, and as part of the whole drama, I made a speech to everybody saying, we, they tried to ban us today from being at this warrant sale, but here's what we think of their attempt, and I ripped this bit of paper yeah. and threw it in the air. Um, most expensive bit of paper I've ever ripped, I got <laughs> six months in jail for that, um, because what happened is they done me for contempt of court. And I went to jail, um, Barlini first. No, 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 they sent me to, because it was a high court in Edinburgh, I got sent to Stockton. Um, and what happened was the next day I hear somebody shouting, Tommy Sheridan, Tommy Sheridan. And I didn't know at the time, but it, he was the past man. And it was a wee guy for Govan. Uh, Tommy Sheridan, I said, I'm in here. You've made the papers. And, and he, he shoved a daily record under the, the, the cell door. And sure enough, front page, big heading, downfall of the Dodger. And it was a picture of me with my thumbs up with the handcuffs on, getting led away into the, the, the police van. Um, and I often reflect that that was the narrative, that was the heading, that was the media, it was on the big editorials. This is what happens when you don't pay your poll tax, mm. you know, this is a warning to everybody, blah, 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 blah. And they totally miscalculated the mood. They totally miscalculated. The poll tax was a horrible piece of legislation. Mm. Totally unfair, unjust, immoral. We had to fight it. We, we, we had had all sorts of petitions. We had had sorts of demos. They didn't listen. We had to go for civil disobedience. And uh, what happened is that was March, downfall of the Dodger. And then in the May council elections, 
I'm elected for a prison cell to Glasgow City Council. First time it's ever happened in Scotland um, that anybody's been elected from a prison cell. Now, I had to stay in for another couple of months. I couldn't, couldn't take up my seat until July, uh, but that's what, what happened then. And I often reflect, uh, Mark, that I was sent to jail for opposing a warrant sale in 1992. Seven years later, 1999, I was elected to the Scottish Parliament. And I was able then to do what I said I was going to do, and I introduced the first private member's bill to abolish warrant sales. Because warrant sales have nothing to do with raising debt. They, they, they don't raise mm. debt. What they do is they frighten the hell out of you. They mm. humiliate you. Mm. They force you to get into more debt. Because anybody that gets a warrant against you for a warrant sale, you think, oh, I need to pay that one. How are you going to pay that one? Oh, I need to go to a, a money lender to get the money for that. So you end up getting into yes. more debt. It's, it's just a spiral of despair is what it is. So I, I, in the, I got into the Scottish Parliament and I raised the warrant sales bill. I had Alec Neil from the SNP and John McCallum for the Labour Party. They co-sponsored it. We worked together. We got all the anti-poverty groups together. And uh, here's a wee, wee story. It's dead important because it doesn't often get told. But we worked together. We tried to make it cross-party. And it came to the recommendation from the committee. What happens in the Scottish Parliament yep. is a, a committee is allocated to a bill and they study it in detail and then they make a recommendation about whether it should be supported at first stage. And lo and behold, against everybody's expectation, the committee says, yes, it should be supported. They listen to ordinary people saying, these things don't work. These things are just absolutely de de designed to drive people further into debt. So it came to the first stage debate in the Parliament. And a couple of weeks before it, Donald Dewar, one of your yeah. uh, acolytes, uh, Donald <laughs> Dewar had had a heart attack and he w wasn't in Parliament, he was ill. Donald Dewar, on the day of the first stage debate, called an emergency Labour group meeting in the old friend's meeting house up at the top of the hill there. At the time we were in the Church of Scotland building, that's where the Parliament was sitting yeah. temporarily. Donald Dewar convened an afternoon meeting, half past 12, Labour group, and he pulled them in to whip them into line to vote down the, the abolition of warrant sales bill. To vote it down. Now, that, what pisses me off, you know, talk about narratives and the media. You would read about Donald Dewar and you think, oh, you know, he's a fighter for the working yeah. class, representing the working class. He was representing bloody drum chapel in Glasgow. And he's calling people and he's come out of his sick bed. He's only the heart attack two weeks. He's out of his sick bed to try and tell MPs, you must vote to keep warrant sales. Is that Labour for you, Matt? Is that what Labour's reduced to? Now, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, people in that room, I know Jan Lamont, who was the Pollock, who was my area, Pollock MP said, I can't sell this. Mm. I can't go back to Pollock and say, I've went to the Parliament and voted to keep warrant. I just can't do it. I can't do it. And then several others piped up and piped up and piped up. And before you knew it, they had a rebellion in their hands. You got it through. And what happened, this is the, bit, the funny bit about it, is because Donald Dewar was off, it was given over to Jim Wallace, who was the deputy leader. He was a Lib Dem guy. It was a coalition government. Jim Wallace was to stand and oppose the warrant sales bill on behalf of the executive. But unfortunately, the Labour group meeting ran on. And the debate started, and Jim hadn't got the message. <laughs> So I got up and gave it loud there about how, how unfair these warrant sales are, how they're a, attacking the poor, how it's a disgrace. And people were applauding in the, the public galleries and the wee David Steele pompous wee guy. They're not allowed to clap. No, he was getting them into rows and all the rest of it. And Jim Walsh gets up, QC attitude and accent and blah, 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 blah. We have to keep these. We need to, we need to have the final leverage. We need to be able to force people to pay, blah, blah, blah. And then he sat down. And all you saw was all these wee notes getting passed in. And they were all like wee mice all running about. Boom, 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 boom. And I just saw Jim Wallace's face, because I was sitting right across mm -hmm. him. And it just went a whiter shade, you know. And what had happened was he'd just been told yeah. that the Labour Party was going to abstain. And what happened when it came to the vote? Yeah. Tories voted yeah. against abolition. Yeah. Lib Dems voted mostly against abolition. Yeah. SNP voted for abolition, mm. the Green Party, myself, Dennis Canavan, Margot yeah. uh, MacDonald, we all voted for it and we won. And that's the first time, it, it's actually the first time, sadly it's the only time that there's ever been a debate in Parliament where people didn't know what the result was going to be. Because <laughs> normally, unfortunately, the Scottish Parliament, 
everybody knows before yeah. the debate how the vote's going to go. But that's the, f the first time that it was actually turned round and we got the first private members bill. Certainly thrill. Um, in terms of uh, other spells <laughs> in prison, I don't want to dwell on incarceration, but uh, it's, it's an area of politics that slightly fascinates me. Jeffrey Archer's prison diaries, Dennis McShane's, Jonathan Aitken's experience. You had your own specific experience. Less really about your time inside, although just as a quick question, were you ever scared of life in prison? Do you know what? Um, I get born in Govan, moved to Pollock in the south side of Glasgow. Um, I had a brilliant childhood. But it was a very gritty housing scheme. Um, you know, I uh, lived in a tenement building. Um, you got to know who were the numpties. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and you got to know who to avoid, you know. Yeah. And in many respects, prison is like a big housing scheme. Uh, there are lots of decent people there who have either done something that was stupid or they've done something because they were poor and were economically mm. trying to make ends meet for the family. And then there are some people who are bams and you want to stay away from them, right? You know, and you um, learn um, that what instinct. Sort, what sort were you? Well, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you learn that instinct, Matt. I, I think one of the, one of the advantages was um, I was no bad at football. And that can be quite an advantage in prison yeah. because you get football most days. And when most people want you to play in their team, yeah. uh, it's no bad because then everybody's, oh, you're looking after Tommy. Oh, he's not a bad player. You know, hey, don't, I'm getting injured, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it helped. Yeah. Um, and the fact that my upbringing had been, you know, quite a working class, gritty upbringing, um, I, I never, I never, why would I fear people, you know? They, they, you know, dangerous people in prison. Yeah, but if somebody threatens you, they threaten you, you know, you're, what are you going to do? You can't run. You're going to have to fight, you know, and at the end of the day, uh, you just have to stand up for yourself. And, Did you have to at all in that? No, uh, fortunately, I never, uh, I never had to um, battle. Um, I remember one, one, one guy helped me out a lot, actually, Big Ronnie, um, from, from, and I say Big Ronnie, uh, we, 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 we Ron scored, Atkinson. Oh, oh no. Um, <laughs> What happened was that I was, I was a civil prisoner, believe it or not, and uh, they found out in Stockton that uh, civil prisoners were supposed to be separated. They were supposed to be different from criminal prisoners because yeah. it was a contempt of course. It was a civil crime, uh, but they didn't have any segregation. So what they said was they were going to move me to the lifer's wing. And this, uh, this <laughs> wing of Stockton was where all the lifers went. And of course, to be a lifer, you had to have committed murder. That's, that's what you get life for. Um, but it was called the Training for Freedom Unit. So all these uh, prisoners had all done a minimum of 10, most of them 12 and 13 years inside. And I was to go to this Training for Freedom Unit. Um, and I remember the prison officer taking me over, uh, old Jimmy, and he says, Tommy, you know, you'll be all right, you'll be all right, but, you know, just look after yourself and all that. I says, all right, what happens? He says, well, at the end of the night, at nine o'clock, we just lock the door and then we leave the, <laughs> we leave the unit. <laughs> and he's just fend for yourselves. I says, how many is in there? 16. I said, all oh, right, okay. <laughs> so here I was getting taken out of this unit of 16 lifers and I was getting put in there. Um, and uh, sure enough, Ronnie comes over, uh, sorry, Jimmy comes over, locks it down. And this guy's leaving the room that I'm getting put into. Yeah. And he's lifting this dumbbell out of the room. <laughs> and to me, it looked like a barbell, but it was a dumbbell. <laughs> it was massive. And he's just lifted it up nonchalantly. And uh, Jimmy says, ah, oh, that's Ronnie. And I said, hi, Ronnie. And he just stared at me. Jeez, <laughs> I shot myself, you know. <laughs> and he went upstairs. And Jimmy says to me, don't worry, Tommy. Ronnie's all right. It's just this is his room you're taking. <laughs> he's getting moved upstairs Shit. and he's going to have to share with somebody. <laughs> And I thought, oh, for Christ's sake, what's going to happen? And sure enough, sure, five past nine, the prison officers have locked up. Away they go. My wee door went. I'm going to try and get off voice now. Hello? Uh, and he comes, big Ronnie. Massive, absolute man, mountain guy, muscles on muscles. And I thought, sake here, what am I going to get a doing? I mean, I just thought I was going to get a doing. And he just came out and he said, Good to meet you, Tommy. Never mind all that stuff. That's just prison politics. I'm trying to get to go to a, a christening and I have to show them that I'm not happy with this. But 
I'll look after you. And after that became a big bloody mate. We used to train with him, doing the weights and all the rest <laughs> of it, you know. Um, so there's an example where oh, that's good. it could go one way, but it actually went another way. And the truth is, um, my, you know, prison, don't get me wrong. When I got out, Ronnie said to me, Ronnie, by this time had done 12 years. And Ronnie says, Tommy, please, please don't glamorise prison when you leave. Don't. Because you've got to think of all the other yeah. youngins and all the people that are listening to you. And I've never, ever, I've always said prison is a rotten place. An absolute rotten place. People talk about, oh, you get the telly and you, can, you get three meals a day and all the rest of it. Fine. But you try and go in a position where you don't see your wains properly. You can't hug them properly. You, you can't just um, speak to your mother. You can't speak to your father. See, when you're confined for all that time, it's a horrible place, and uh, I think we should spend a lot more money, Matt, on rehabilitation yeah. in jails, because there's a lot of people with, with, with good skills and good hearts there, but unfortunately they go into prison and the skills they're learning are the ones that we want them to learn. Yeah. So we should spend much more money on rehabilitation so that when somebody comes out, they've got their HGV licence or they've, they've got their joiner's certificate, yeah. they can actually get a job. It, just in terms of, and I don't want to revisit the, 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 the trial and the story and all the, the sort of salacious details and allegations about it, but one thing, reappraising myself with it this week that really struck me was that back then, phone hacking and things like that <laughs> were seen as um, paranoia, were seen as conspiracy theories. <laughs> me Paul Gascoigne went through sort of similar experiences to you. It was Glenn Mulcair who was implicated. Andy Coulson had to come up from Downing Street. He later lost his liberty. Um, for, leaving aside the details and everything else, um, the story that you were telling then in terms of how they'd accessed certain information was probably dismissed by most people as uh, you know, a blag or, or a fantasy. How do you feel now, given how phone hacking has unfolded and people's attitudes towards the media? Because really, you were, you were the first case where this was explored. Well, let, let me quote Andy Coulson um, when he was in the witness box in Glasgow and I was cross-examining him. Um, and uh, Coulson at that time, remember, was the top man for David Cameron. Yeah. He, he was David Cameron's top man. This is, the, right. this is the top of the tree, very top of power. And he stood in a witness box and I put to him that my phone had been hacked, that several other phones had been hacked, that there was a culture um, of hacking of the black arts of illegal access of computers, of illegal access of phones, of blackmailing people, of blagging information. And he said to me, I always remember his, uh, his, his reply, only Mr. Sheridan in your parallel universe does that happen. Wow. Only in your parallel universe. The reason I say that is, when you've got a jury who are listening to my side of the story, which I've been fitted up, I'm part of a conspiracy. I've been set up here. And I've got David Cameron's right-hand man telling me it's a parallel universe. It's, I'm off my head, basically. Yeah. Now, if I was to go and tell that jury yeah. what was really going on, I was only touching the tip of the iceberg of what was really going on. These people were running a criminal enterprise. They are criminals up to their necks. Murdoch is implicated. Brooks is implicated. Coulson is implicated. He lied through his teeth throughout the whole of that uh, testimony. And the problem is, so far, all we've had is the tadpoles. It's only been the wee Indians that have suffered in any way. Um, Mulcair got jail, uh, the royal editor got jail, Coulson got a wee bit of jail, Brooks hasn't had jail, Murdoch hasn't had jail. Every one of them should be jailed. There should be a corporate criminal action against the Murdoch press, NGN, should be in a court for how they bastardised the justice system in this country. It's a disgrace what they did, Matt. Tommy, the time has uh, completely run against us, that's flown by, but just very quickly, one last question with a, with a quick answer, please. It's been the defining question, really, of, of the last three or four years in politics, and I'll put it to you. What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's hard. Uh, you know, <laughs> 54 years of age. That's, that's quite uh, uh, difficult. Um, let me see. 
Um, I would probably be in the, the, the Big Brother days. Um, I, I, when I was in Big Brother with... Um, Coolio. Unfortunately, I, I, maybe I shouldn't tell this story now, actually, because it was about wee Vern and he's passed away now. But yeah. I don't think he'd mind because he was a lovely, lovely guy. And uh, wee, wee Vern, um, on one of the nights um, that then went on to make Big Brother history, um, wee, wee Vern sat with, with me and, and Coolio and Terry Christian one night and... Uh, <laughs> We, we, the big brother had supplied the champagne for everybody. Yeah. I, I didn't drink. I was teetotal, so I gave mine to Wee Vern, which was naughty uh, because you got size of Wee Vern, and obviously alcohol goes into the blood that much quicker. And he was getting double the, the amount. And he, he he sat there telling us how he was in love with Latoya. Um, and I, he asked me if I could speak to Latoya for him because <laughs> Latoya was had became a pal of mine. And she'd confided in me with things and all this. And could I have a wee word yeah. with Latoya uh, to see if she was interested in Vern? Um, and I had to say, look, mate, I don't need to speak to her. I can tell from my conversation so far, it's not going to happen, mate. It's not going to happen. And what he did is he got dead upset, yeah. jumped in his wee scooter. And then <laughs> if you go into CBB top 10 mm -hmm. moments, he just rammed it right into the diary room door and fell off it. Um, and that, that, that was me, Vern's experience in Big Brother. So I think it was naughty of me to give Vern my champagne. Well, that's a very, very, very good answer. Um, Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'll be back next week on the 15th when I'll be interviewing Coolio um, <laughs> <laughs> about his side of the story. I'll be here with John Swinney, uh, former leader of the SNP and, of course, Education Minister. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming for being such a wonderful audience. Please give a huge political party thank you to the wonderful Tommy Sheridan. Thank you. There we go. Tommy Sheridan at the Edinburgh Festival this summer. As passionate as ever. Uh, as ferocious as ever, and that uh, that that fire is absolutely undimmed. I do wish we'd. I'd, the, the first part of the interview flew by, and he was absolutely engrossing, talking about independence and socialism, and really getting into the meat of those political ideas. But I did realise that the clock had sort of ran on a bit by the time we came to talk about his time inside. And uh, you, know, you do have to be slightly um, careful when you're talking to. Uh, your, your guest, if they've had controversy or difficult moments, it's always a, the interview is always inevitably going to end up there. And getting into that subject and handling it is always uh, not genuine anxiety, but you always you don't want you don't want to offend people and you don't want to look like you're gossiping about what happened. But it it really struck me that when he started talking about his time inside, there's a real rich seam of experiences there that so few of us will ever have, so few politicians ever have. Uh, that um, it would be great to talk to him about those in more detail. But uh, there you go. The hour flew by, and that's testament to the passion uh, and, the, and the fire that still burns within Tommy. Uh, the next guest on these Edinburgh specials is former leader of the SNP, John Swinney. See you next week. <laughs>